Welcome back to What Happens Next. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. This is our final episode for this topic. Dr. Elizabeth or Ella Finkel is one half of an Australian scientific power couple. A scientist and researcher, Ella turned to telling the stories of science as the editor of Cosmos and more recently through her books. Her latest book explores how scientific theories are tested. And as always, we've gathered all the best tips and advice from our featured experts to help us as individuals make change. Hello, I am Elizabeth Finkel, uh, who abbreviates herself as Ella. I have uh, had a career in science all my life. I started off as a research scientist. I shifted from being a research scientist to a a science journalist and more recently I spent six years as editor of the popular science magazine Cosmos and I left that uh, a couple of years ago and uh, for a year now I have been working on my third book. Ella Finkel, it is so nice to have you here today. Thank you, Susan. Can you tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment? Right. Oh, God, I'm uh, in the agony of writing a book, looking at theories in science and how they're tested. Mm. And uh, um, just to tell you a little bit about myself, I I think you'll have it in your introduction, but I was a working scientist and then I was a journalist and then I was an editor and it's been a process of turning from a carrot into a, a rambling pea because as a scientist you're very narrow, you know, you know a lot about very little. As a journalist, you start spreading a bit, but then when I had to be the editor or when I chose to be the editor of this popular science magazine, Cosmos, I had to know about everything and in depth because, uh, you know, I I was passionate about a mission to educate and I wasn't going to allow anything to go on those pages unless I understood it. And I can tell you when I started, I did not know much about general relativity or string theory or things like that. And now you do. And now I do. (laughs) (laughs) So you're looking at the way we test scientific theories. Yes. What have you come across so far in in your research that might test some of the theories about how we understand human history or how we research human history? I I should just say my approach is a narrative one. I'm a storyteller and I've, I've found, you know, through my two previous books that this is the best way to convey information, even complex scientific information. So what is the story of the way we research human history? The story, okay. So fascinating. And I I have to say that my book is really a thesis because I don't know what I'm going to find going in there. I've told you I'm looking at how science works, Uh, but I don't know really. I thought I did, but... Being the editor of Cosmos, I had this sense that there were different cultures and that different sciences kind of, there were differences about the way they operated. And so I went into this book as a kind of a thesis, an exploration. Let's see how it differs across the sciences. And let's see how it operates in the 21st century because, you know, worthy people like, you know, Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn have written about this stuff already, but they were writing about the science as it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and science has transformed. You know, there was a time when 
Theories were big and data was small. Now, data is big and sometimes you can't even find the theory in there. So prefacing this by saying this is an exploration for me. What have I found in archaeology? So this is um, one of the stories from my book, looking at the peopling of Australia and why have I and what, what's the theory here? Well, because it plays in to a much bigger theory, which is the origins of all humans, modern humans. Uh, and Australia, Australia's first people are enigmatic. They seem to have been here uh, more than 65,000 years and our best theories at the moment of when people came out of Africa are sometime between 60 and 70,000 years. Wow. So you see the problem. Yeah. <laughs> you see why geneticists, archaeologists uh, around the world are zeroing in on trying to figure out the origins of Australia's first people. Mm. So um, this is, you know, chapter two, following on from gravitational waves. <laughs> Just so two light, two light chapters to get the book going. <laughs> yes. If I, if I have a mission, it is to better understand the way science works. And, um, and you know, I, I would say science as a discipline is the distillation of probably all that is the best in Homo sapiens. Here we are with our, you know, uh, brain, that it, an ape brain adapted to hunting and gathering across the savannas. And this ape brain has been able to fathom things that use nothing of our senses, you know, the workings of the universe, uh, the ability to, to fathom that space and time are actually a fabric and that we can detect gravitational waves, ripples in that fabric. You know, uh, this is my first chapter, Einstein's Theory of Relativity, whose prediction was... Um, that there would be gravitational waves and a hundred years after he made that prediction, we detected them as ripples in space-time. This is science, you know, the distillation of the best that is in Homo sapiens. But we still are Homo sapiens with that ape brain and all the, all the other things that come with it. So it is people, it is still flawed people who practice and aspire to science, and I think that in telling my stories, I want to show how we've um, iterated through through the centuries, and in telling the story of Australian archaeology, how um, we've gone from archaeology when it was really a history where you couldn't do much more than make imaginative leaps, to now with um, the infiltration of science. Those theories are being tested ruthlessly and I don't think all the archaeologists are enjoying it all that much but a lot of archaeologists, you know, do, you know, are, are definitely, you know, what you see now in archaeology is huge multidisciplinary teams and, um, and that's, that's the way that, that it progresses. What do you think our investigation into 
pre-colonial history can tell us about what it means to be human and what it means to be Australian? We are really finding out. And it's um, tricky territory. I'm, I'm also having to educate myself about um, Aboriginal understandings of, of, of their history. And, um, and it means I have to write very sensitively. And I'm trying to find a path that uh, is both true to the science and yet would not be offensive mm. to any Indigenous people. So, um, you know, the Indigenous uh, traditional narrative, as I understand it, is that um, they don't see it in terms of, you know, thousands of years, 65,000 years. They see it as we've been here forever. Like any people, there are many, many voices, right? So you will often hear traditional owners say we've been here forever. But you will also hear traditional owners who are taking tourists uh, across their lands. Well, we've been here for 65,000 years or 40,000 years. So I think, and indeed many um, Indigenous people are working archaeologists and I will consult with them to help me articulate the scientific narrative in a way that respects uh, the beliefs of, of traditional owners. So I think uh, the best thing I can say is I'm feeling my way uh, of, of how to tell my story, which looks at what the science is saying in a way that is also completely respectful of the traditional view. Why do you think this work is so important? We are in the post-truth era. And uh, once upon a time, we were in the era of enlightenment. That, uh, the, the, the thinkers of the enlightenment were in turn inspired by the thinkers of the scientific revolution a century or so before, Newton and Galileo, who were developing the scientific method, a method for how you... Uh, learn, gain knowledge about the universe, a method for doing that based on um, theories, on uh, obtaining evidence, on testing those theories and understanding the limits of, of, of what you were observing, the limits of your data. And um, we are now living in this beyond belief era that has been brought in by the, the information superhighway. Like many other people, I'm trying to figure out how we have gone in the exact opposite direction of enlightenment. I would like to think that um, by telling people stories of how science works, of how we gather evidence, of how we overturn theories or or, or, or how new theories are, are deemed to hold more water than yesterday's theories, that, that if I make the stories good enough, entertaining enough, I'm not writing these stories to hit anybody over the head with science and say, you know, you're an idiot. But I think what it shows me is I have taken it for granted. My decades in science have taught me how science works. That is 
what I'm attempting to do. Softly, softly, you won't even know you're getting this stuff down your throats. I'm just (laughs) going to tell you great stories. best advice that you could give to people who may want to become uh, more science literate or learn more about the history of humanity? Where's a good place they could start? There, there, there are some great podcasts out there. The Science Show, Robin Williams, <laughs> ABC. That's a good place to start. I love to listen to the New York Times podcast, The Daily. Me too. Um, I think... You know, I I gave a talk to the National Press Club last year. The talk I gave at the National Press Club really made the point that science and journalism follow the the same precepts, to report without fear or favour. And, um, you know, uh, uh, and and, and that's why I love the daily. You know, they, they, they get to the difficult truth of a story. I think the daily is a great place to start. If you want to put more scientific thinking into your understanding, because they will drill down uh, to get both sides of a story. If there is another side that's worth telling, you know, some sides are not worth telling. A side that is just backed based on rumour and hearsay is not worth giving oxygen to. Um, so, yeah, listen to the science show, listen to the daily, and remember to be humble in your pursuit of knowledge. Remember what Michael Faraday said, I hold my theories in my fingertips for the slightest breeze to blow away. You have to be prepared to revise your theories when solid data, you know, mitigates against them. I love that quote, that I hold my theories in my fingertips so a breeze can blow them away. That is a brilliant way to govern our lives. Ella Finkel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Susan. Professor Lynette Russell is the Director of the Monash Indigenous Studies Centre. Hi, uh, my name is Lynette Russell. I am a Laureate Professor in the Faculty of Arts in Monash Indigenous Studies Centre. I'm an interdisciplinary historian, so I do anthropological history, which is really a history that tries to not only teach us about the past or learn about the past, but also understand what people were doing, what their motivations were. Uh, And I work closely with archaeologists and other disciplinary specialists. I'm also the Deputy Director of the Centre of Excellence in Biodiversity and Heritage. Professor Lynette Russell, welcome. Thank you. If there are people listening to this podcast that would like to know, where can they find out more information about deep time of, of human, our human history? Where could they find reliable information? Certainly, certainly the Centre of Excellence for Biodiversity and Heritage has an excellent website and that will put you in touch with lots of public outreach, um, particularly around, you know, archaeological sites and the like. Um, Also, IATSIS, the Australian Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, has excellent um, resources. And there's a number of really quite excellent, um, you know, websites. Uh, Probably you're not going to get people digging through 
you know, detailed archaeological scientific reports, mm. um, which is why sometimes, you know, we might get something like that and then we'll turn it into an article and pop it in the conversation or and you know, on the ABC or something like that, just to get people the opportunity to, to hear this from, you know, from a, perhaps a non-scientific perspective. Mm. Lynette Russell, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Justin Adams is a paleontologist finding previously unknown facts about extinct species such as the Tasmanian tiger. He tells us why we need to keep looking for new information about who we once were and why that matters today. Uh, Hi, I'm Justin Adams and I am a comparative anatomist and paleontologist and medical anatomist and anatomy educator and, and I'm a bit of an academic platypus. You look at me and you wonder how I came to be. Justin Adams, welcome. If people are interested in, you know, the deep history of humans, human evolution, that kind of thing, where could they go to find out more? Uh, I I would say that there are some good resources. Start with the really good museums, places like the Smithsonian, uh, places like the the Natural History Museum London. Institutions do a really good job of curating and then conveying with as much accuracy as they possibly can uh, the scientific information. But of course, the challenge there is that it's rarely cutting edge. Um, What I really do see as being a, a benefit, and one of the things that has come up more often, is that we are constantly trying to make our scientific data more publicly accessible Mm -hmm. as opposed to being behind the paywalls of journals. Mm. Um, I think that when you hear about a new advance like on CNN or ABC or any of the media outlets, there is obviously an article or multiple articles that underlie that. And obviously you hope that the scientists have been able to have the money to make it open access because it's, you know, it's usually not cheap. Uh, But I would say that uh, we've had quite a bit of success recently with working with groups like The Conversation Mm -hmm. uh, or or some of the other, you know, university-affiliated groups and things like this uh, where we can start, like, walking through what the results mean uh, in a way that is publicly accessible and isn't behind a paywall. And it goes beyond the soundbite that we get in a CNN article or an ABC article. Um, You know, oftentimes we do extended radio interviews or commentary uh, or TV interviews or or other media stuff. And unfortunately, it does have to kind of really be boiled down because scientists are long-winded. It's what we do. Uh, So that can make it a bit challenging, I think, for people to find the 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 real story that's behind maybe the narrative that has been spun. But there has been a bigger push to make data more publicly available and and to make things like, you know, common language abstracts, things that everyone can read and understand as mm. opposed to it being indecipherable. Uh, Science does a good job of this, the magazine Science, uh, where, you know, it's got the hard research article that's in the issue, but then there's usually an opportunity for us to write a one-page synopsis of of what's in the article that is much more user-friendly and and really boils down the major results. So I think that there are ways, but I think definitely we could be doing a much better job of sort of, I guess, um, navigating those waters. Uh, and and making it more accessible to people. All right, so go to the museum, read science, tan suit is optional. (laughs) Justin Adams, thank you so much for your time today. It's a real pleasure, thanks. 
Alastair Evans is a paleontologist who explains why we need to keep exploring our history if we want to understand our planet and ourselves. I'm Alistair Evans. I'm an associate professor in biology and paleontology. Uh, I study how animals evolve, how they are built in an embryo, and how they function throughout the 500 million years of vertebrate history. Alistair Evans, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. If people are really interested in human evolution, where should they look to find out more? Well, in, the, in these days of uh, internet resources, there are um, dozens of great websites, um, online courses that can teach you about human evolution. Um, and I think understanding evolution in general is, is fantastic. Uh, there are some MOOCs about that um, that are able to give us a better idea of um, why humans are the way they are. Mm. They are not, um, well, as, as far as we know, they're not deposited by God. They really are evolved over many millions of years. Um, and knowing that that is not a perfect process, we end up with a somewhat functional but still flawed uh, organism, um, but uh, w with its own requirements in food and social behaviour. Um, so understanding evolution in general is great. Um, one of the units that I coordinate is about understanding how evolution affects modern society. And so that is that type of thing is really useful um, to open the students' eyes on well, why do we have disease? Why is our social structure like this? Why are we being obese? Why do we have these problems? Why are we have back problems, etc.? Um, it's because a lot of those things are are rooted in our evolutionary history. And instead of fighting them, we should understand how um, the evolutionary processes made us end up as we are and then hopefully gives us some solutions into the future. Do you think part of living in a postmodern world and a post in a world that says that all truths are, you know, up to interpretation, truth is dead, that kind of thing, has put humans in a or at least modern Western humans in a in a place where um, we have felt that all that stuff is is up for debate or discussion but yet we seem to keep crashing into the reality of our biology, that we do – fertility does decline for women as they get older. Our knees do start to hurt. We are wired to live in societies. Do you think, you know, sort of as things like postmodernism and, and those ideas have flourished for, you know, in, and in many ways for good reason, it's sort of crashed up into science as well? It certainly has. Uh, and I think that um, recognising some of the fundamental aspects of biology, as would happen with physics and chemistry, you say, well, I can't build a computer by using wood because it doesn't have the right properties. There's things that we can't do or understand about biology and about humans because that's not the way the world works. And fighting against that um, is, well, it's a losing battle. We, we have never won that battle and I don't think we ever will. Alistair Evans, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That is it for this topic of What Happens Next. More information on everything we discussed in this series can be found in the show notes. If you like this podcast, please write us a five-star review. Only the five-star button works for some reason. It also helps other people find the show. 
if you would like us to cover any other topics in the future, please let us know. You can put them in the review comments of the podcast review too. We love to hear your suggestions. I will catch you next time on What Happens Next.